1: hello and welcome back to the new books network i'm your host jacob barrett and today i have the pleasure um, to be talking with jason Bivens about his recent book embattled america the rise of anti-politics and america's obsession with religion that came out in july 2022 with oxford university press jason welcome to the podcast and thanks for joining us
0: thank you so much jacob
1: um i wanted to start you mentioned at the beginning of your book um, that you started this book back in 2009 and then after a few detours um, and other projects, you returned to it with different motivations than you set out um, when you began the book. Why did you write this book and why did you write this book now?
0: Great question. Um, so let me tell you a little bit about how this was shaping up circa 2008, 2009. Uh, in 2008, Religion of Fear was published. Um, and, and you know, I see... Um, Three of my three of my four books have to do with political religions in the United States, and I see them as connected in a certain sense. So I began in 2008, as we all sort of thought through the Obama election, what that might have meant uh, and ultimately did not mean for American politics. Um, I began to think about where some of the cultures of conspiracy thinking of, you know, rejection of the commons, uh, the undermining of shared institutions and norms that I've been documenting uh, since the 90s. I began to think about where that might go. Because in in response to Obama's assent, um, what I and quite frankly, tens of millions of other people noticed was a kind of recrudescence of these um, persecution claims on the evangelical right. And I wanted to document them, but sort of in my way, think about them through um, a series of theories and Mm -hmm. and uh, if, if you like, sort of fugitive impulses that were outside of the gaze of the conventional scholar and conventional media. So I started to think about these categories in the book, um, these these non-ideological or even post-ideological categories, martyrs and whistleblowers. Um, As this was happening, and I'd be delighted to talk about those categories more as this was happening. Twitter was kind of taking hold. Um, You know, you know, Facebook had led to Twitter and so on and so forth. And I became very concerned about. the degradation of academic discourse that I was then witnessing. Now, as a non-Twitter user, I'm also well aware that academic Twitter, um, at least until the last uh, year or so with, with all of the eloning of things, academic Twitter has gotten rather excellent in many ways. Um, but at the time I was sort of, um, you know, I'm not a technophobe, I'm not a Luddite, but I was concerned about you know the whole world of 120, 140 characters. And so I wanted to write about persecution claims, embattlement claims in the most theoretically overdetermined, complex way that I could. So I was using affect theory, Laturian network theory, and I wanted to sort of bring all those resources to the table as a statement of what academic discourse could be, um, despite all of the technological changes. And then I got burnt out. Um, I just got burnt out on politics, you know, I mean, I think it was on a trip uh, back to Indiana, I was listening to, you know, with my white knuckling on the on, on, on the steering wheel. Um, I was waiting to hear the Supreme Court's decision on the ACA, which, you know, that's ultimately good. And I was just, you know, I thought to myself, man, I don't, I don't, I don't know that I can really do this project right now. And then um, Tom Tweed uh, and Bob Orsi Uh, Both separately encouraged me to get back to the jazz thing. So I did the jazz thing and I thought, man, maybe, maybe things will change. And Obama got reelected and I was, I was really, I was really grinding on the jazz research and I thought maybe things will be okay. Maybe things will get at least a little bit better. And then 2016 happened and I thought, wow, not only did none of these case studies that I had begun to sketch out Glenn Beck, Sarah Palin, uh, the Tea Party. I, I had this anxiety previously that they might have faded into obscurity, and then they came roaring back. So I said, "Right, it is now emphatically time to revisit this." But it, the book, as you know, is not shorn of theory in any way whatsoever. But I, I, I came to a different set of presuppositions, and I wanted, um, I wanted to really. Um, to really say something about American politics rather than simply document a phenomenon of concern. So that, that really in, in, in a, in a sort of long winded answer, that's what I thought it was time, um, for me to make a major statement about American democracy. Um, and this book was my opportunity to do so.
1: Yeah. And it's such an impressive book. I think what, um, struck me was that it's exactly what you said. Very, Theoretically savvy, and there's a lot of um important theory happening, but also really timely examples. And it feels very um, very relevant to this moment. Um, and kind of taking the taking the theoretical conversations and saying, and this is why it matters to like it's not just some abstract co- conversation that's happening here, um, which I think is really important. Um in of, you hinted at this a little bit with what you were saying. You, The first chapter of the book is called Changing the Subject. um, And you make a compelling argument that most of the approaches taken towards a conversation about religion and contemporary American politics have gotten it backwards. Um, You hinted at it a little bit, but what do you see as the mainstream approach to that topic, where it goes wrong, and then what's the intervention that you're
0: hoping that, to make it that yes thank you so much for that question Um, uh, and this is one that i've been wrestling with um for my entire scholarly life um it, it, as somebody who is a bit of a political junkie a dc native um i've often been perplexed at how um even in our wing of the academy there are some i think i think maybe not um entirely off-base approaches to the role of religion in politics so much as obviously incomplete approaches. um which is to say that um as vital as it is to study how um you know, uh, social groups get formed, how policy issues are advanced, and certainly you know dear to your heart and my heart how how uh, constitutional issues are adjudicated and debated in american life. I've always been concerned with i would say um the the slow and sometimes less obvious moving of tectonic plates. um that lead us to places where we feel um, as if uh, our condition is inevitable. You know, hence, hence the seeming ubiquity of embattlement claims, persecution claims. Um, so I would say that the standard approaches, and I wouldn't want to name any particular author, um, the, 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 the standard approaches to assessing our moments, um, which is to say, roughly speaking, um, the post-9-11 era, focus on Christian nationalism focus on the ideological transformations of the Republican Party, all of of which these are extremely important phenomena, of course, I wouldn't want to deny the existence of these things. But I have been concerned as uh, a citizen, as an activist, as a person, and as a scholar. um, And as somebody who was raised in a very uh, progressive religious household, um, which is still a large part of my identity, uh, I've been concerned uh, with the transformation and the degradation of democracy itself. Um, and so I as I took stock of the phenomena that I describe in the book, but also the public reception of these phenomena, Tea Party, Sarah Palin, um, l- lesser known figures like David Barton and in, and in previous books, you know, homeschooling and things like this, I have been concerned about, quite frankly, Jacob, bad interpretations. Um, Uh, interpretations that seem to miss the mark uh, as far as the seriousness of the implications for democracy itself go. Um, So what I wanted to do was figure out um, behind the conversations about these moments of spectacle, what are the democratic stakes in play? That was really my motivation. Um, And and in that, my hope was that um, however many people read the book, take the book seriously or what have you all these things out of an author's control my hope was that i would do something um fresh and honest and and distinctive
1: yeah well and i think you mentioned kind of the categories that you use um, to talk about these different groups as martyrs and whistleblowers um and you move away from kind of discussing clear cut you know conservatives or liberals or the right and the left that sort of thing um which i think the move to find a new language is really useful um especially when you're not only trying to talk about something differently, but really see something differently, you know, that kind of removing that language that structures so much of what the problem is that you identify, you know, just like getting rid of it and finding a different language to talk about becomes really useful. Can you talk a little bit about um, what you mean by martyrs and whistleblowers and what those categories allow you to do versus um, using some other different kind of
0: conservative liberal binary? Yeah, thank you. Um... I'm, I'm really glad that you find it useful. Um, I, I suppose um, at the at the most basic level, my my shift to these terms, and, and I've never really been comfortable with um, you know the old dyad of conservative and liberal, as, as central as it is to our lives, obviously. Um, but but one of the things that is, I think, foremost in my mind, you know, even after the publication of the book, is the the. I was about to say near total, but. Um, the the um, the absence um, the absence of satisfying and effective modes of citizenship for Americans uh, and there are a lot of reasons for that institutional reasons and otherwise that I go into in the book so at the at the most basic level um, I wanted to understand why the, the claims the petitions of martyrdom or near martyrdom um, that we encounter on on the right Um, why these are effective surrogates for what I would regard as authentic democratic action and citizenship. I wanted to understand why uh, the self-satisfied identification of seeming conservative hypocrisy that we find on the left, um, you know, the the talking left, the typing left, to use Jody Dean's excellent phrase. I wanted to understand why those were satisfying for, uh, broadly speaking, liberals, who otherwise might not be doing uh, much of anything at all in terms of citizenship. And I thought not only were those categories, I think, um, central to these modes of of sort of non-civic participation, non-civic discourse, I also think they're clear examples of or evidences of um, the blasted the rubble of anti-politics that now passes for public life in the United States. you know, so we have this absolute overgrowth of corporate politics, you know, the political parties are in the thrall, of the lobbies and so on and so forth. So I wanted to sort of find a different way of narrating how citizens fight with each other, quite simply. Yeah. And I think it's it was really useful
1: to me as I was reading. Um, because I think especially the language of like conservative and liberal, like mm-hmm. in the same way that when we talk about, you know, when we deploy the term religion, like we think we know what it means and it's come to mean so many different things that doesn't, that don't get interrogated or questioned. Um, and so then we're saying the same words and we're talking about different things, but we don't really know we're talking about different things. And yeah, so I thought I I really appreciated your move to kind of think with, Martyrs and whistleblowers, especially because that also feels um, those are active words. You know, it's not necessarily ideological, but it's more like how are you using martyr narratives? How are you whistleblowing?
0: You know that that feels important. Yeah, exactly. And 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 the the activeness of those terms um, and the ways in which those terms um, enable um, citizen practitioners uh, interlocutors. To construct a particular history, to construct a particular institutional narrative, and so on and so forth, right? I think that signaled me um, to the ways in which even the journalistic pivot to tribalism was less than wholly satisfying. And I think you really put your finger on it um, a few minutes ago when in, in opening this line of, of conversation, you mentioned uh being sort of trapped in a particular language. And and I think that really is what I was going for, whether or not I I successfully articulated it in the book, you know. Because we have no um, satisfying or or efficient outlets for our own civic activism, because you know, to be an American in this moment is to feel overwhelmingly impotent, um, overwhelmingly just unable to make change. There's a kind of desperate um quality to being an American today. You know, we're we're just trapped, you know, in, in the book I call it, you know, this flag-wrapped brokenness, you know, um, one of my sort of poetic moments, right? And, and I just feel like because there's such a lack, there's something about these two discourses, um, the sizzle, you know, life as action movie that provides catharsis in the face of nothing else.
1: Yeah. And I I want to um, highlight to one of the other, I, I mean, the title of your book is Embattled America. And this idea of um, embattlement and embattlement narratives is really important throughout. Um, can you just talk a little bit about what you mean by that, about um what embattlement is to you and why it's useful.
0: Yeah, so um, the original title was actually um, embattled majority. Um, And I was interested in how both martyrs and whistleblowers um, claim to represent the majoritarian American viewpoint and are unjustly embattled. Um, So embattlement claims for me taps into this long history whereby different groups of Americans are simultaneously and endlessly claiming to be frozen out of public life um, to be the victim of an activist judiciary it's it you know it's the endlessness of that trope and the 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 sort of stunning and yet entirely unsurprising way in which nothing ever changes despite the recurrence of those claims and so what embattlement means to me is the formation of an identity the coalescence of a subject position um the the sort of you know in in the sort of the the overwhelmingness of what I call the world the ability to sort of stake out a position that is um at least temporarily resilient in the face of all this ongoing data um so embattlement is a framework and not a reality but i also didn't want to get trapped in this kind of like salon.com i'm going to expose you for not being embattled i'm going to document your annual you know your annual income and so on and so forth because i think you know one of the one of the things that became apparent to me while I was revising this during lockdown and so forth was that um, and this is one of the ways books work, right? Um, sometimes you don't figure out some of your central claims until the very end. Uh, whistleblowers fuel the martyr narrative uh, always and everywhere. So the way to get and, and back to your original question about changing the subject, if we as citizens are concerned about changing things, And if we as citizens believe that one of the least fruitful public and political conversations in American life is the conversation about evangelical persecution or embattlement, then the best way to get out of that condition is to absolutely avoid the conversation altogether, because even to bring it up to disprove it would be to give it more life. Yeah, yeah,
1: (laughs) that is spot on in addition to this theoretical framework that you pulled together, um, there's a wide range of examples throughout the book um, from political moments and figures to pop culture, viral internet moments. um, And I think that was, it felt, sometimes you read a book with lots of examples and it feels like kind of a grab bag of whatever's there. And that's not what this felt like. This felt like the examples that you were drawing on in the wide range of examples contributed to your larger argument about kind of the everywhere-ness of these whistleblower martyr dynamics. Um, so my question is, how did you settle on the examples that you were going to use? Um, and how, why was it important, I guess, to use so many different, not only different examples, but different types of examples?
0: Mm-hmm. I. I think the best way to answer that question is just to point out some features of my personality, um, which is to say, this is the way that I've always worked. Um, I'm sort of an omnivore when it comes to American life, and since I've been, since I was an undergraduate at Oberlin College, I've just kept notebooks filled with observations. Um, and as I was going through this, and again, this is this book has had the longest gestation of anything I've ever worked on, and, and that'll likely remain true. Um, you know, I had like notes upon notes, documents upon documents, and I would just sort of, you know, write down, oh, hey, then, you know, there's this Cardi B lyric or, you know, there's this moment from American Idol or what have you. And I really think it has to do with um, the ways in which even those Americans who don't actively speak the language of martyrdom or whistleblowing, the, the depth and the permeation of these ideas is evident everywhere. So in a sense, if the world is my archive, which it kind of is, you know, from a comment section to, you know, getting back to an earlier technological era, you know, a blog roll or something like this. Um, there are certain moments that quite simply pop for me, um, you know, the Braveheart being a sort of obvious one. Um, but, but I, I really do think that particularly since the 1990s, as politics has gotten more corporatized and hollowed out and saturated with fear and so forth, we start to see, um refractions of and deflections of uh authenticity in perhaps sometimes the most unlikely places um yeah i hope that's a, a a coherent answer
1: yeah definitely um and i think too that the examples that you used as well like they're not just um i like that you said the world as your archive um that you also draw a lot on Personal anecdotes, personal experiences, how you move through the world and have experienced things. Um, Why that was? As I was reading, it was surprising because I don't think I don't bump I don't bump up against that in um, scholarly texts often, especially scholarly texts that are so theoretically um, structured. How I guess why was it important for you to put yourself in this book as as yourself as a citizen as a you know not just jason bivens scholar of american religion but jason bivens as a person living in this world and experiencing these things as well
0: right and wishing we weren't living in this world and experiencing (laughs) things yeah i think uh, you know it's such a great question because um you know, for me, I think about the structure of the field and, you know, behind your comment just now, you know, I I, I hear your reference to um, genres of religious studies in which the authorial eye is more common, which is to say probably ethnography, which is a, a genre that I love, um, but do not practice. Um, you know, um, that eye has been in all of my books um, to a certain extent, Um it, it, in the jazz book, it, it's because I'm a participant in the broad world of jazz performance and criticism. Um, and that's sort of that's the book in which I get closest to ethnography. But in terms of um, Battled America and its relationship to the previous two uh, politics books, it's because I'm trying really hard to carve out a role for social criticism in religious studies. And I really think, you know all of us are concerned to bring our our skills and our knowledge, um, our sensibilities to the table. All of us are concerned with mattering. Um, and there are various ways in which um, each of us is going to identify zones in which that would be productive, you know? Um, but for me, uh, I, I, I feel like I've sort of been creeping around the edge of some normative claims for a long time. Um, and I thought, you know, if I, if I'm going to get there, the I makes sense. Um, I, I think it's not necessarily an anecdotal I, but in a certain sense, I'm identifying myself as a person who is trying to articulate a platform for uh, political reform, civic reform, and to do so in a different tone would have seemed to me inauthentic. But the other part of the answer I would say, and this does come through in the book, is that um, you know as, as I was really refining these arguments uh, on January 6th, 2021, um, I got all these texts from friends of mine, and um, I was filled with uh, as somebody who grew up with a five minute walk from the Capitol, I was filled with rage, absolute uncompromising rage. Um, and I thought, right, this is my moment, um, and, and and I'm going to take the moment, and whatever happens is what happens.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think too, the book strikes me, and this it it strikes me as important um in a conversation about kind of the role of scholarship Mm -hmm. in greater society Um, right right and that you know it kind of to me originally I'd thought of it as like oh this is the this is the bridge between the scholar activist dichotomy or you know this is the the answer to scholar activist debates about you know what's that role but as as I'm sitting and thinking I, I don't even think that that's true, that I think this is, to me it feels like wanting to, in this move to restructure and think differently about the dynamics, that it moves away from even understanding scholar activists as uh, as a binary or as two things that like, when do you put your scholar hat on, when do you put your activist hat on, when do you put your citizen citizen hat on, it kind of moves us out of that realm entirely.
0: Yeah, I like that very much, you know. Um I simply think uh and I wouldn't want to uh I wouldn't want to condone my methods um as, as sort of normative for the field or anything like this, you know. Um I can only do me. Um but I do have to say um uh I I do personally find it dissatisfying when people write about political religions with no edge. Um and if you're, you know, this can look a whole number of different ways. You know, I mean, for example, um, you can do great scholarship on racial alterity in the nineteenth century, as Catherine Jin Lum does. You know, I mean, you know, that's that's pretty that's pretty edgy stuff. You know, um, I wouldn't want to say that it has to be engaged with the present or it has to be theoretically uh, inclined, as my work is. But I do think um, I do think it's odd when people write about, uh, political religions in the U S as if it was just some sort of merely intellectual enterprise. I mean, look at what's happening after all.
1: Kind of in the same, the same vein of what you were just talking about. Um, you say that you're, you start your book saying that you're tired of scholarship and uh, scholarship and politics, both, um, telling us that things need to change and we need to do something different without giving a map of what, comes next of how to move forward, what that change looks like. Uh, And so then appropriately you end with your version of what that change can look like and some practical steps on how we get there. Um, So my question is kind of twofold of what are some of those steps that you see as moving forward, Um, but also how do you see, how do those steps get us out of this embattlement discourse that you identify as the main problem?
0: Oh man, uh, th- this is really the heart of the book for me, you know. And and I tried to do it, you know. In, in, in each of the chapters, I say this 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 thing is really about representation, and I and I try to do a little bit of that in each of the case study chapters. But it has its roots in two, I think, unforgettable moments for me. Right. Um, so even you know, when this thing was on hold, I I, I was still giving talks about it, um, and I was invited out to um, to Colorado. And Ira Turnus in Colorado, I got to give him a shout out. You know, he, he's in the acknowledgments. So Ira's this great scholar of, of pacifism and civil religion and all this other stuff. Um, and we were at dinner afterwards, and, and and you know, he's he's I think emeritus now. Anyway, he's 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 a generation or so older than I am, um, and he's a really good dude. And he said to me, "Are you ever going to say something positive about America?" And you know, I hemmed and hawed my way through an answer. But boy, that stuck with me and positive wasn't necessarily, um, you know, rosy or optimistic in this sense. Are you ever going to say something that's not merely interpretative is how I took his question. So I just kind of stuck that back there. Um, And then a few years later, I was working for um, the great courses. I was doing one of those, you know, video courses and and 24 lectures. And uh, my my editor uh, at the great courses said, right, we want your your final lecture to tell us what to do and I was so bummed about that I was so reluctant but in my mind that's when Ira's comment got resurrected and so I started thinking constructively um as I, as I pieced together this one lecture and and I came up with um you know which is not to say the material is the same right but I came up with this fourfold schema um which is self-community nation world right but it's, it's an obvious schema um but it's the way that I was thinking about it and um, and, and as I was thinking, as very much a not-policy person, um, you know, I have friends in the policy world and so on and so forth, but but I know that's not where my strengths are or or even where my competencies are. And I knew that I wasn't going to make an argument as to how structural change can happen. You know, I, I, I don't have a roadmap for, you know, overturning Citizens United or anything like this. Um, but what I do have, I hope, is a series of arguments two people, and four people as to why politics is actually worth it. Um, Because I think one of the things that's gotten us to this blasted moment in American history is that we've given up on the very possibility of change. And somehow through all of this madness of the past few years, I've discovered that I'm still an idealist, um, which is why I'm angry all the time. Um, And I thought, what we can all do, regardless of money or anything else, is we can begin with this process of self-inventory. What are we doing? Each of us individually, what am I, Jason Bivens, doing? What are you, Jacob Barrett, doing to contribute to the appalling nature of civic discourse? And maybe the answer is nothing, but I think I think we have an absolute responsibility as each of us citizen custodians of American democracy in a time when it's really bad, I think we have an obligation to undergo this process all the time um, with our students, with our fellow citizens, with people we meet in the Harris Teeter, what, what do you got? and to seek out opportunities for meaningful collaboration on the community level. And my hope is that um, if those two levels start functioning, and, and for we academics, maybe that means you know a, reaching out to a church or something like that, having a, you know, having a teach-in or something like this. Those things are really, really fun, uh, I find. Um, I love connecting with citizen groups. You know, the things that we don't put on our CB uh, but matter more than the things that we put on our CB, in my judgment. I think we do have power at the local level. Um, and if direct democracy can experience at least some kind of revival, uh, I wouldn't want to say there's necessarily a trickle-up effect, but things can get better. I genuinely believe that.
1: And I think that's was the general tone that I really appreciated throughout this book was that even um as I you know when I picked it up and was reading through it it I spent a lot of my time reading about American politics and when I'm not reading for school about American politics I'm scrolling on Twitter and I'm seeing stuff and you know and things get doom and gloomy really fast um and then I also kind of like my stomach hurts a little bit when it's the like too sweet version of a oh and this is how we make a perfect world and this is the solution Um, and so i really appreciated the book as a um very grounded move through an analysis and diagnosis of what's happening without being the doom and gloom and pointing in a direction maybe not the only direction maybe not um but opening the door to say how do we imagine new? Um, because that's the the first step. I think really is having to, being able to recognize that we can imagine new, and then and then taking those steps is really important.
0: Yeah, that's my hope. You know, I mean, I I really I really believe in involvement. Um, I believe in people. Weirdly enough, um, you know, the astounding capacity for cruelty that's on display every day in this country. You know, I mean, the all the things I think about as a man in his fifties. You know. I, I'm, I'm astounded every day that we're still dealing with the things that we're dealing with. Um, as a scholar, neither you nor I are surprised. We ne- we can trace the historical roots of these things, but it's absolutely appalling that in this, um, you know, the wealthiest country that has ever existed, which prides itself on a certain uh, pious self-understanding as a bastion of freedom and tolerance, that we're still dealing with homophobia and transphobia and racism and misogyny and all the rest, um, and, and it it fills me with great sadness and great anger but as a person of privilege myself um and this is really one of the things that motivates my writing and my teaching I I, I I am not afforded the luxury of wallowing in sadness yeah you know um that's that's sort of where I am
1: yeah and I think yeah I think that's that's really great and I hope that um this I hope that the field, takes note <laughs> and and that as you know as more work comes out on the contemporary moments um mm-hmm. that scholars can begin to ch- change the subject and think differently about where we're where we're at and where we're where we can be headed um, i hope
0: so too i hope so too we we occupy a really cool field um it's it's filled with creative people um people of of good conviction um and I want more of us out there doing uh, doing things that can move the needle, quite frankly. Yeah,
1: well, that's all I have. Do you have any concluding messages that you want to send out into the world? I think that's a pretty good place to land it. I think it's a pretty good place too. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being with me today, Jason. This was lovely. And um, for everyone listening, go read this book. It was It was
0: well worth the time. Thank you so much, Jacob. It's been a real pleasure and an honor.